0: Yeah, so hi, Zach. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. So, Zach Stein is an, an educator and a philosopher of education. And, and it's also the author of a book, um, Education in a Time Between Worlds. And most recently, um, he's also a co founder of a consilience uh, project. Um, so, hi. <laughs> hi Zach. It's great. great yeah. to talk. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I read your book in well February 2020, and uh, b- before that, um, well, I, in the late 2019, I applied to this conference. Um, it's teaching uh, for life, so I, I I've been at attend- an attendee of this conference before. Uh, it's for educators, maybe it's like 300 uh, most active or let's say passionate or or kind of. Um, yeah, active uh, educators in Slovakia and um, it's like a three-day three conference and actually it, in 2020 it was supposed to be held in March, you know, but then the COVID broke and it was actually postponed twice, but maybe more and that later, but... Um, it was dedicated uh, to the 350th uh, anniversary of death of John Amos Cominius, so uh, who you know well <laughs> as a friend. <laughs> and yes. uh, yeah, so thank you uh, very much for your time. And uh, also it was a great book. And... Uh, Thanks to the conference, I had the uh, uh, opportunity to do reread sections of it and listen to some podcasts with you and uh, check my notes. Uh, so, yeah, maybe if we um, we could get uh, ready into it, into some questions. Yeah. So maybe, um, how do you see
1: uh, your book or predictions
0: of your book or the core message in light of
1: the current pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I... <clears throat> the. I wrote the book, you know, between 2015 and 2019, basically, and it was published in 2019 uh, in January. Um, But I actually have a scenario in the book where I suggest, well, what happens if schools get disrupted, right? Like in the book, I I say, maybe it'll be a climate crisis or an economic crisis, but at some point the buses won't run and the cafeterias won't serve food. And what do we do then? Uh, And uh, the whole thing, The whole notion of the book, the time between worlds notion was a notion about civilizational collapse or civilizational transition, depending how you want to characterize it. And so in that sense, the book was, and I, of course, I didn't know the pandemic was coming, (laughs) but I knew something like it was coming because there are so many systems. In this case, it's the medical and political systems that I believe are being the most stretched. But there were other scenarios where it's the financial system uh, or the ecological system uh, or supply chain systems. And all of those started to get shaky, too, (laughs) when the pandemic hit. And all those same scenarios still could unfold. Um, So I was tracking that and suggesting that we needed to build a much more resilient educational system that's not like schooling. Uh, And that is as different from what we know as schooling as schooling as we know it was from the thing that came before it, which is the whole Comenius story, <laughs> right? Like the, the, the school systems Comenius was imagining were so fundamentally different from the school systems that existed, uh, let's say in the preamble to the 30 years war, you could say the school systems actually produced 30 years war. <laughs> uh, you could say we're so different from what Comenius was envisioning. And so I'm suggesting there's a comparable world system transition that's underway and we need to think about the future of educational systems beyond schooling. And so I proposed these educational hub networks, which are basically what tried to self-organize during the pandemic. (laughs) The school (laughs) shut down. They sent out this like hub and spoke network of little pop-up classrooms in every household. So every house becomes a schoolroom. Uh, And I was basically saying every neighborhood could become a community-run educational part of a community run educational hub network. Um, So had the infrastructures I was proposing been put in place prior to the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, we could have flipped a switch and dropped into another like backup generator, (laughs) if you will, like a different off the grid kind of, you know, meta modern educational hub network. So I, you know, I, 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 it's always when an author writes something that is like this and then something comes to pass that kind of makes it seem true, you don't, you don't feel good about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause you're like, this is what's happening is very complex and very dangerous. We're in a very, very kind of out of control situation. Uh, and some of that has to do with the inadequacies of our educational systems to meet the demands that are being placed upon them by the increasing complexity of the problems of society if you will um so so that's i guess would be my answer <laughs> yeah. you know i yeah please
0: yeah i like the the metaphor of backup power generator it's uh literally what um yeah it's it's great metaphor um uh because it's like, um, in in a sense, COVID is like uh, like the power went out, but it was like the health went out instead of power. You know, so like, uh, who 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 knew that so many things are predicted on actually healthy uh, societies without some transmissible uh, diseases um, and uh, so it's like a switch went off and suddenly you can't meet people so it's it's a great, great metaphor but you also mentioned in other places like I, I like this uh, generator power generator metaphor a lot you also mentioned that uh, what actually happened is like the the screens have won and the schools have lost during COVID. Somehow, if I'm correct, so maybe right. we can elaborate on. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, the I, one of it's the a, arguments, one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that <clears throat> digital technology has outpaced schooling, which is like that before the pandemic hit. It was already the case that screens were winning and schools were losing, that the, the whole modality of schooling was kind of being made obsolete by the ubiquity of information due to the ubiquity of the personal computer, which is to say the screens are everywhere. Screens are literally embedded in our everyday life. We bring them to bed with us. School's just this building that sits there for six hours a day where we actually don't use screens in an intelligent way. <laughs> Like the kids are actually using the screens more sophisticatedly at home, talking to their friends than their teachers know how to use them in school. So you're kind of going back in time when you go into a a normally run school. Now, there are exceptions to this. There are amazing schools that are keeping pace. But I'm talking about large, typically state-run schooling systems, large bureaucracies, basically. The American school system in particular exemplified by, by, let's say, the New York public schools which is the, probably the largest school district in the world, I would imagine, but yeah. maybe not. And so, so the issue is that schools were already basically being made obsolete, and the pandemic accelerated that by like five years in about five months. <laughs> it was, all of a sudden it became clear, oh my goodness, like there's a way to actually run this whole thing differently. Um, and I think uh, for better and for worse is the point. So the, the idea that, sc- that screens win and schools lose could be a, a bad bad thing. <laughs> uh, it could be a liberating thing, a wonderful thing. So it's about what we do with that fact. but first we have to get we have to admit that fact, which means that main school mainstream large-scale educational reform can't focus on just fixing the schools anymore. We have to admit that the schools are so outpaced by the technology that we have to reinvest in education in a different way. And so this comes to the technological back end for something like this distributed educational hub network, which would be a backup generator that's actually more efficient than the grid. <laughs> so it's resilient if the grid goes down. <laughs> but once we have built it, then we actually are safer if we disconnect from the grid and run this, this thing. Now there's a whole bunch of other stuff that has to happen for a truly distributed educational hub network to fit the demands of the society, including these other social miracles I discuss, which also were accelerated by the pandemic.
0: Yeah, um, like the the, mm, the the basic income guarantee kind of, of yeah. happens. <laughs> in, yeah, exactly. In the for, yeah, again, yeah.
1: for better and for worse. So yeah, I yeah. think a lot of these trends accelerated.
0: But uh, the core point, if I understand, is that um, it's uh, the design is key. It's not only about like some technological progress uh, uh, as such, like let's say more screens or more screen time uh, or cheaper smartphones. But um, if if the services are optimized. For for time spent on site, as Tristan Harris says, like let's say on social media, and not on time well well spent on site or let's say on learning, like some if you we could have some metric is a is a yeah, you don't like maybe the word metric here, but like uh, so optimize for something different, like for quality of life or quality of learning or, or something. Yeah. and so it's okay. not.
1: Yeah, yeah, the technological. So basically, it's saying digital makes schools obsolete. Step one. Step two is something like the current form of digital is completely inadequate (laughs) and actually, uh, predatory. It's winning for the wrong reasons. It's winning because it's like an addictive drug. Um, so the idea would be to admit that digital outpaces schools and then commit something like, like a Manhattan project level investment in education in thinking about the digital as an educational medium, not a profit-making memetic warfare medium, Mm -hmm. (laughs) an actual educational medium, in which case the ratio of screen time to in-person time would flip. And this is my main argument about educational technologies is that um, Khan Academy and YouTube and these things are just actually the pre-digital paradigm on steroids. It's just the VCR with the... With the nova special with volume turned up but there's a thousand channels right so it's like um it's broadcast but it's multiplied it's not actually doing what the digital does best which is network network and encode memory uh and enable extended mind so that's a complex way of saying (laughs) what we could do and this is the back end for the education hub network i recommend is you build a very complex time and skill sharing network right? So that the educational technology is actually a networking technology that enables real people to get together in real time and space, but it's very complex. So what it does is it takes a community and it says, who has what to teach? Who has what they want to learn? All of that's put together and it outputs, right? These teachers, these students in these places, you create pop-up classrooms where you do education, maybe screens are used there, but the whole point is that the, the digital doesn't need to make it so that we sit in front of a computer and that's how we learn. The digital could actually make it so that we find one another in actual time and space to have educational experiences we couldn't have had without the digital networking technology. So the the main fix is actually to move away from the model of the skinnerian when B you know B F Skinner the the behaviors the skinnerian learning box or the Skinnerian learning machine where you sit in front of a computer and it just feeds you information that's that's Khan Academy like that's just that's YouTube you know that's the main modality if people think digital education they think huge inventories of videos that people watch basically <laughs> you know or like other things where they maybe have chat rooms and they talk together or something like that's like no man <laughs> uh, what we need to do is use these things to create self-organizing, educational communities that make the implicit, hard to find educational relationships that are in a community explicit and easy to find. So that if there's a guy who wants to teach piano and there are kids who want to learn piano, (laughs) uh, that's easy to do. And the state supports it the way it would support a school. So there's a longer conversation there. But yeah, digital technology as it stands is anti-educational. It's actually a means of informational warfare. And profit extraction, and uh,
0: propaganda or entertainment, as you you probably like. yeah. It's yeah, and also um, yeah, I yeah, we could go many many places with this, but uh, as as yeah, like your core thesis is that uh, education is a intergeneral a generational transmission of uh, knowledge or capabilities, and so uh, and. Uh, the the all crisis or the current global meta crisis is like a crisis of education, and you mentioned elsewhere that uh, also like journalism, for example, is one example where there is like maybe the um, combined with social media and these predatory aspects and kind of um, yeah. Uh, Decrease of quality of media, uh, uh, media becoming more like tabloids or something like that. But it's also a problem of education or intergenerational transmission of uh, uh, knowledge or ethos uh, between the older generation of journalists and the younger, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's one way to think about it foundationally, is to say that's why I can say something like schools are dead but education is in a renaissance, right? I can say something like that because education is more basic than schooling. Education uh, is a species specific trait that involves very complex intergenerational transmission of culture and cultural artifacts, tools in particular, and tooling. (laughs) Uh, And so yeah, that's how I define it. It's like, um, I also talk about um, social autopoiesis Right. So if you know dynamical systems theory, autopoiesis is the work the organism does to stay itself. It's the self-making or self-creating capacity or function, the autopoetic nature of the organism. So societies have to do a certain amount of work to reproduce themselves uh, and to, to stay being the same society, to stay being the same civilization. So education is the most basic thing. Which means it's much broader than schooling. I'm a I'm a Deweyan, like a John John Dewey follower in that sense, where he defines it as you know most of the major institutions of a society are educational, uh, and of course the family is the primary one, uh, and of course it was Comenius who pointed this out <laughs> way back in the day um, with the school of infancy and the mother and the family being the primary metaphor of what education needs to be at all higher levels of institutionalization Um, so yeah so there's a there's a deeper way of thinking about education than schooling Uh, and what that allows you to do is look at how digital technologies could help us or hurt us (laughs) in terms of are we accomplishing intergenerational transmission or not successfully right? And so if you look at the work of like Margaret Mead and other people who started to trace the existence of a generation gap, which is to say an increasing misunderstanding and misalignment of motives between generations, a lot of this has to do with technological change during generational change, right? So it's like as technology becomes almost exponentially transforming, the generation gap is going to inevitably get wider and harder to maintain, (laughs) like, uh, and so that's something we need to track as educators, that it's actually harder to be truly an educator now than it was, let's say, pre-enlightenment, right? And then Mm -hmm. it's harder now than it was post-World War II because the environments of socialization, right? The places where kids are growing up are saturated with a completely different kind of communication technology, like, so it's just, <laughs> it becomes a very important to keep your eye on intergenerational transmission and let the old institutional forms fall away and somehow maintain connection <laughs> between generations. Um, and there's uh, some things that make that hard to do. Technology is one. Uh, and then things like corruption uh, and other factors make it difficult to pass on one like civilization, like to pass it along. How do you pass it along if it's deeply corrupt, <laughs> right? Um, it's hard to do. Uh, so so yeah, so that's, I think I'm tracking that. And right now, as we've said, the digital technologies are, are working against intergenerational transmission when they need to be used in favor of intergenerational transmission. And so comparable to, to bring in Comenius again, <clears throat> to the context of the 30 years war, where the use of the printing press in particular as a tool of propaganda was just like refined, like it was remarkable. Um, The extent to which the printing press, which was an innovation that was not a military innovation, (laughs) right, it was a cultural innovation, was used for military, militaristic power purposes. Now, Comenius steps in, and Comenius writes a series of textbooks for teaching Latin, right? Orbitus Pictus being probably the most famous one, but there are several other ones of the gates of language uh, where he innovates literally at the level of technological printing press innovation, where the use of a picture and the descriptions of the picture and the juxtaposition of the two different languages allowed for a completely novel educational affordance for a text. (laughs) And so he flipped the script on the propagandistic use of the printing press and basically said, what we can do is use the printing press to do something that's almost inevitably educational. Like it was such a powerful innovation. Like every royal family taught their child Latin using Comenius's textbook. This is what allowed allowed Comenius to go around all the royal courts and be already, his reputation preceded him. It was translated into Russian and China and Iranian and all of this stuff.
0: It was like the first children, widely used children, book or something like that,
1: right? And They call it now a children's book, but it was in fact... (laughs) Very powerful tool for teaching all uh, ages to to read Latin, um, and but my main point there was that it was the same technology, the same technology that was escalating conflict by saturating urban environments with pamphlets and posters and uh, propaganda. That same tools used by Comenius to saturate <laughs> the aristocrats with uh, learning, um, and that's what allowed the Kind of constellation of the invisible college and eventually the turning over of one civilization into another civilization um which is what occurred uh, the birth of what we now are seeing ending the kind of capitalist world system uh so so yeah so that's an interesting lesson so as bad as it is with the digital technologies now it is precisely in those technologies <laughs> where the future of education resides but it doesn't look like a kid sitting in front of a screen at all
0: yes so so it's like the the argument against uh naive uh, techno optimism uh that it's kind of there is some kind of uh hegelian synthesis of uh, like opposites like okay so technology uh, can be used for bad or for for good but it's uh it's not um uh But the, the design is important as well. So you you can use knife for sur- for surgery or for killing someone. So and bigger knives or more knives doesn't uh, necessarily mean more progress or something like that. Right, but
1: there are some technologies that are obviously designed as weapons. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like um like a bomb for example. Like yeah. It's a, da- a dangerous thing to have around, even if you're using it as a paperweight. Right. So and similarly, like with Facebook, like Facebook and some of these other social media platforms, it's like, no, this is this is designed basically from the ground up in the wrong way. Uh, And so the sense of like technology is neutral. and It's what we do with the technology not exactly correct not, not always pretty,
0: of course yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Not always. It's, it's very clear that some technology is basically always going to be bad
0: <laughs> and and also uh quantity has uh some uh, its own quality when it's like really uh, on a big scale but what i like about this um uh, one example it's um Bio, well, uh, I I forget the name actually, but something like Biocarbon Engineering. Yeah, that's the name of the company. And they repurposed uh, drone technology for planting trees uh, for like maybe 60 something times faster than people can and okay maybe uh, this this is one <laughs> small example of like radical repurposing of let's say military technology for planting trees which is which is nice it's kind of similar to what forest landry and his kind of uh, way of thinking like maybe we should use technology like humans using technology to repair the planet so um that might be maybe one of like just just like a side note there uh, that it's it's possible, but I guess it's rare. These kind of examples. I think we need more of them, but. Um... But you mentioned Margaret uh, um, Mead and uh, like three different cultures uh, elsewhere, like some pre-figurative, configurative, post-figurative, if I remember it well. But uh, basically your um, your idea of, uh, or the phrase and the metaphor of a time between worlds is very like poetic and very nice, but it has also some kind of like a technical uh, meaning that you um, already mentioned, with the Thirty-Year uh, War, third year War, John Amos Comenius being a refugee during that war, a religious refugee, um, as well as educator, and um, and he used the technology of printing press, but it was like a paradigmatic technology that brought enlightenment and brought maybe uh, French Revolution and Napoleon. If um, okay. If like this big history of uh, reading of Alexander Bard and this uh, information, you know, paradigms, we can uh, if we take it into account. So, but uh, um, but you you are using this uh, time a time between worlds in a, also technical sense uh, in like two different kind of ways uh, that go uh, deep into like. Um, a complexity theory or big history so maybe if you can maybe shortly elaborate that and maybe then we should get more into John Amos Comenius
1: <laughs> yeah I mean the well Amos Comenius is relevant because he represents a figure who lived in a time between worlds the way you and I live in a time between worlds and you know the notion came from two different convergent perspectives on big history which is to say two different perspectives on like the long duration of human history. So whole centuries, you know, many hundreds or thousands of years of history told in one narrative. That's like big history. Two different ways of telling that. One was Emmanuel Wallerstein. He is a world systems analyst, um, very good economist and economic historian. Uh, and then the other was uh, Gene Gempser, who's a historian of uh, culture. Um, And both of them posited that there were kind of, and you already used the phrase like epochal, which means like major historical world historical changes at the basis of the organization of civilization and culture. So it's a complex statement, but these are structural analyses of the way that economies run and technical infrastructures run and the way that cultures run and like mimetic architectures are maintained. Um, and the time lapses are interesting, which is to say that the, the stages in Gebser's model of civilizational cultural unfolding and the stages in Wallerstein's model at a couple points line up really interestingly. And one of those is during the 30 years war this is the beginning of what Wallerstein sees as the capitalist world system, uh, where you get a change from the ancient regime, right, where you had a feudal empire and the divine right of kings, and then in a relatively, quote-unquote, short period of time, you get the enlightenment, you get the birth of scientific organizations, and the end of the divine right of kings, and the beginning of capitalism and democracy, and we know that story, right, and so that's Wallerstein documents that and then says during the capitalist world system there have also been shifts major rollovers in the dominant hegemonic power that runs the capitalist world system beginning in Venice going to the Dutch then eventually to the British Isles and then to the United States and the question is what's next well, right what's okay. next and so and Wallerstein asked that question. <clears throat> and similarly, Gebser says, yeah, there's been these transformations, transformations from the magical to the mythic, to the rational, to the a which means the non-rational, trans-rational. And then he asked the question of what's next. Um, so both of them posit that we are in the context of a world historical transformation that's at least as profound as the one that was occurring when Comenius lived, which is the, which is the, the move from a pre-capitalist to a post-capitalist world, from a divine right of kings to a democracy world, from a no science to a hegemony of science world, that it's that big of a shift. Or (laughs) it's as big as like the Bronze Age (laughs) and the emergence of urban life um, from tribal existence. Uh, So I'm not sure which of those it is. There's another theory that it's actually as deep as, let's say, like
0: Multicellular organism, yeah, right? Like it's
1: actually an evolutionary transformation that yeah, it's like from
0: like, single cell to move, to, yeah, from single to cell
1: to or from you know pre-hominid to post-hominid. The yeah. what Deschartres de chardon called the hominization or cerebralization, the birth of all at the, roughly the same time of all of these um, Homo sapien species, and then we emerge as Homo sapiens sapiens. So the the point of it is that. Uh, this major transformation underway, but it takes time. Like it's not that it just happens. So there's a period of time when the old world has, it no longer exists. The basic assumptions of how those cultures and infrastructures and economies run no longer hold, but the new world has not formalized, right? That we don't actually have <laughs> new infrastructures and economies or new cultures. Right. So that means there's a space in between, uh, where there is both worlds existing at the same time and neither of them existing. So this is the time between worlds. It's a time between historical epochs. Um, in theological terms, it's a time when God is absent, right? It's a time because God is the order. It's a sense of order. The sense of heaven is an order and earth is an order. Um, so when God is absent, then you get the mixing of heaven and earth together, and you get this period that's full of potential punctuated equilibrium in uh, evolutionary terms, right? It's a, it's a time that's potent for self-organization and evolutionary change. Uh, and so there are gonna be attractors within the space which are already the, the parents of the, of the future. So like, it's worth noting that many people during the 30 years war ended up going to Amsterdam Like they kind of the intellectuals, many of the invisible college to Amsterdam and to uh, England Uh, with a civil war happening. It was more complex, but you end up getting Comenius is there. It's where he dies. It's the center of the use of the printing press for non-propagandistic purposes. (laughs) And it's the origin of the Dutch East India Company where Comenius dedicates his main work. His main pedagogical work is dedicated to the Dutch East India Company, which is an example in the time yeah in the in the time between worlds she's actually seeing that's the future <laughs> that's one of the things here like it's not the royal courts and it's not the pope and it's not luther it's this dutch east india company which is actually running a model of economic organization as different from the feudal system of economic organization as the educational system comenius wanted to pitch and move forward was from the existing feudal educational system. So he was actually seeing (laughs) that his large nationwide public education system for all kids teach all things to all people in all ways like that was possible through something like (laughs) this Dutch East India Company, which wasn't having any of this bullshit that the royal courts were engaging in like crazy mythical debates about heaven and the body of Christ and all like as mystical as Comenius was, he wasn't hung up on that stuff, which causes religious wars, right? He was very interested in what allowed people to collaborate at a higher order at planetary scale in ways that unite people and cause peace (laughs) and learning. (laughs) Uh, And so it was just interesting. And so similarly today, there is a need to be able to discern in the time between worlds what's a remnant that it actually needs to be allowed to die and pass away. And what is a harbinger of what's to come? What are the positive seeds and parents already existing of the future civilization and how do we direct key energies towards those seeds of the, of the future? Um, And in the space of education in particular, As I've been saying, I think we need to look at the generator backup off the grid style community run hub network and high end rethinking of digital technologies, like very like resource intensive government funded, like private public collaboration (laughs) towards really rethinking digital technologies in the interest of helping children not giving them brain damage and identity confusion, which is what's happening now with digital technologies like on mass. Um, so it's actually urgent for many countries as a national security issue because the state of the adolescents and younger people under 12 is so dire from a mental health perspective uh, that they won't be able to man armies or staff businesses. <laughs> like it's that it's that severe of an educational crisis due to the disruption of the educational technologies and the total totally unregulated interface between the adolescent brain and the asymmetric AI technology manipulating <laughs> the attention of that child. So it's just like it's a crazy situation. It's comparable to when huge coal conglomerates, Uh, in Dickinsonian England put young kids in coal mines you know what I mean it's like it's like it's that how do we let this happen like oh capitalism is this out of control (laughs) it's it's
0: like thousands of PhDs uh, psychology PhDs working for these social media companies let's say um Trying to optimize the AI, and it the, the as Daniel Schmachtenberg says, it's the the AI is like thousands times uh, stronger than the AI that uh, that has beaten Kasparov at chess, right? So, and you are a single person there trying to I don't know look up a tweet, and then you realize, oh, I spent uh, half an hour like <laughs> just in an emotional I don't know like a like a I,
1: yeah, it's, like, a, it's, like- it's, a, it's a kind of mind control technique. I mean, it's like, anyway, it's a longer story about hypnosis and sensory <laughs> overwhelm and the manipulation of the amygdala and subliminal messaging. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that is now basically part and parcel of being online as, as a young person and as we're susceptible to it too, but I'm speaking mostly about um, the child welfare element <clears throat> to technology regulation. Uh, so, yeah. And again, Like that's one of those things in the time between worlds, you know, which, which of these technologies is actually just some weird holdover from this prior way of doing business, which is what I think a lot of what we're looking at. Um, It's like, oh, we're just going to continue to extract resources, but the resources will be people's attention uh, and sanity (laughs) instead of like coal or wood. Um, so that model a la Zuboff's um, surveillance capitalism uh, and others who've looked at techno-feudalism, uh, that the dominant modality of social control uh, and extraction, um, like that we're, we're moving technologies that could be used to create a very different future into the capture of the past. <laughs> um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's because, uh, again, like education, it's uh, not placed in a vacuum or it's, uh, you need, as you mentioned this, or outline these certain social miracles that need to happen for, um, let's say, some a step function or from a human humanity or education going like from a caterpillar to butterfly kind of uh, uh, from um, the scarcity model to the uh, educational abundance model let's say and you need um, like uh, loads of contexts to kind of change slowly or 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 faster than than slowly but um so, uh, yeah, and similar to this uh, technology, uh, predatory, let's say, um, a predatory digital technology, it's based on a, the share, a shareholder the mod, model or fiduciary, not fiduciary duty, but the uh res- actually not uh, it's uh, the, the fiduciary duty here is absent uh, uh, so and uh, there is duty only to shareholders of those uh, let's say public companies to turn on uh, profit right so uh okay and maybe the stakeholder capitalism is not enough to to make it or to change it somehow we, we need a uh, deeper deeper change in technology and also in design or yeah. you know, in ethical so, social technology or psychotechnology.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's Comenius saw it coming, right? Like his ultimate vision, the pan sophic vision, resulted in a program of universal reform. Education was the top of the things that needed to be reformed. It's like superstructure reform it would create reform of governance which would then create reform of economies or infrastructures, right? So you kind of saw this stack where you had infrastructure, social structure, superstructure, (laughs) if you will. Um, And the the main point there is that right now, technology, infrastructure, communication infrastructure is running of its own autopoetic, self-replicating, out of control, profit maximizing, not constrained by culture or ethics at all. That was not a great sentence, but I think you got what I was saying, that that right, we don't have a social structure, we don't have governance, or a philosophy of ethics that could justify that governance, that could actually bind that infrastructure, that could actually hold Facebook accountable, and then make an infrastructure that would actually serve the purposes of governance and uh, well-being, right? Uh, and so... Comenius saw that you couldn't reform the education system without reforming religion and politics and economics, like full stop. And he's like, we actually have to have a program of universal reform, uh, in the interest of placing education as the most important human endeavor. And this is this is an idea that I had before I ever encountered Comenius. And then when I encountered him, I thought I was gonna I, I dropped everything and basically was obsessed with Comenius for six or eight months. To, and it's this notion that in fact, you know, right now we're kind of in an idolatrous situation. We're kind of worshiping something that we shouldn't be worshiping, which is the maximization of economic growth. Um, and uh, communists believe that we could build a society where all of our shared cooperation was in the interest of pursuing further human development. So it was an, literally an education-centric human development centric society um, where profits weren't kicked back into making more profits endlessly <laughs> that profits were kicked back into making better humans endlessly so that you had a kind of a, an poetic dynamic within the society that actually overall increased the quality of the society and specifically mm-hmm. the people in the society. So he had this vision of a, of a new way of understanding the relation between basically governance and education and uh, religion. Markets. or <laughs> Markets, right. Yeah, so it's, it's, several yes. moving pieces. Yeah.
0: yeah it's like uh, the government should check the predatory aspects of markets and uh, educated uh, population should check uh, the government so it doesn't become corrupt or just like... Sure. A, Um, yeah uh, just uh, captured by oligarchy or some special interest
1: yes and this was the comedian vision I mean the his most famous book the the labyrinth of the world and the paradise of the heart right which is like a parable of his journeys through this kind of like post babble uh, insanity you know Uh, and then the solution to it the Russell Christian brotherhood more or less the skies in the book um ends up being just that the the the, the possibility <laughs> of something emerging within a space that's fundamentally corrupt uh a new way to regulate the earth right and so you know Comenius was a, a christian um and so his notion of preparing the way for a world sovereign is kind of an interesting notion um and which is to say, the, the kind of political apparatus he imagined and the kind of educational system he imagined um, was a model of governance that was not modern. <laughs> uh, like this, and this is where I think after the Enlightenment, much of Comenius's thinking was brought into the education system, but they jettisoned and they left behind a lot. And this was that he actually had, I would call, a meta modern vision which was post-secular, which allowed for the infusion of sacred value into human concern, like politics and economics. Um, And so the the splitting apart of religion from governance and religion from economics uh, is something that emerged after the Thirty Years' War. It's part of the Enlightenment. But it was something that Comenius was basically working to augment. He would basically say, you want to differentiate those things. They're different. (laughs) But at the end of the day, we need a society that has uh, a sacred value on human life. Um, Not a legal, not a legal value (laughs) where there will be a legal value, (laughs) but the superstructure the ideology, the philosophy of the civilization needs to be one that's basically post-secular, uh, which is a wrinkle in the Comenian philosophy of education, which shouldn't be overlooked. And it's, it's an argument that I make, this is again where I see eye with Comenius, which is that when I lay out the characteristics of the future educational system, I say it needs to be post-secular. Doesn't mean it needs to be Christian, <laughs> doesn't mean it needs to be religious in the classic sense. But it needs to be conversant with those dimensions of human experience that speak to the sacred and that allow us to actually justify social structure that can bind infrastructure, right? What's the moral and ethical and religious capstone of the civilization, downward propagating from which are the motivations and identities of the people who carry out the governance and build the infrastructure, um, the ultimate justification system, first principles and first values uh, is what we're kind of talking about. And so that's where Comenius put the chicken in the right position in front of the egg, <laughs> which is to say the first conversation we have before reforming everything, which is what he thought the world was ending unless we reformed every institution. <laughs> uh, and so, but the first conversation is the conversation about education. It's about how, do we, how are we sure that we have our heads on straight and that we can work together to continue to keep our heads on straight and to learn enough to then work to reform other things. Uh, so similarly, with climate change or corruption in government or economic reform, it's all great. But if you're working from a fundamentally wrong foundational conception, which is to say, if your philosophy is wrong, if you're mit- if you're miseducated, and you're not in a context where you can be properly educated, then you will undertake the wrong environmental (laughs) uh, plans. You'll do the wrong economic reform. You'll do the wrong carbon capture thing. So the mind and the crisis of the mind is the meta crisis before the other specific crises of infrastructure or social structure. There's the superstructure crisis, (laughs) the crisis of the mind of sanity and of capacity to learn or incapacity to learn. And you know, one of the general ways you can evaluate a social system or a person's health is the extent to which it has positioned itself to continue to be able to learn or not. Um, yeah. And so if, if you if you have built up an identity that makes it so that you have to protect yourself from learning <laughs> to maintain your, to maintain your identity. That's not, not, not going to last. And similarly, a society can get to certain points in the way it regulates the fourth estate and the press and the media and the way it what regulates its academic institutions where the society can no longer adequately learn. It's lost its capacity to learn. Ideally, dem- democracy is a kind of Habermasian idea, it's supposed to allow societies to continue to go on learning and actually up- upgrade their capacities for learning Uh, in the absence of democracy, you can get downgrades (laughs) in the capacity for the society to learn as a whole and sometimes localized little epistemic bubbles of people who think that just a small group of powerful elite can somehow learn enough to regulate the whole society. But that's naive. Uh, So then they're like, well, we'll build an artificial intelligence who can do it. (laughs) also that's worse yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the pressing need for forms of open society that enable collective intelligence to upgrade our society-wide capacity for learning we got a very convenient idea because hardcore comenius was basically saying that in the, in the 17th century yeah.
0: wow. Yeah, it's like um, not prioritizing the state or markets, but uh, community first, maybe putting community first. It's some kind of like a positive feedback loop or um, a victorious circle or how you call it, virtuous, virtuous circle. Uh, where maybe a uh, community shouldn't be sacrificed uh, at the, the expense of markets or the state. And so maybe some technocratic elite is not enough, AI. Um, specifically, it's
1: it's, uh, it's communities of inquiry or communities of learning. Mm-hmm. That's specifically Dish. It's not just everyone gets their together and feels happy and yay, we're in a community. <laughs> like it's a, you know what I mean? Like it's a specific mm-hmm. kind of community where there's a, epistemological commitment to sanity and like clear intergenerational transmission. So it's an, it's an educational community, which, which would be necessary to form and to maintain prior to any political or <laughs> yeah. economic adventures of reform.
0: Yeah, I, I, w- I wanted to tie it back to the, the notion of the sacred or the post-secular. So um, I'm, I'm not sure if I understand it well, but okay, this is some, somehow... Uh, quite um, maybe abstract but it's like this first person view versus second person versus third person and for me it's kind of more subjective uh, it's when it's connected with like local communities small scale like you mentioned uh, bioregionalism or bioregions like a, like a natural scale of uh, actually existing um, region where there is a river and there is some kind of trade and like some kind of uh agriculture around let's say that river and there are some natural boundaries and let's say some small uh, communities and how to connect this like bio scale uh community to let's say a cosmopolitan vision so it's something like rooted cosmopolitanism as this notion um i'm not sure who came came up with the, that notion first but it's I, I like like this phrase and so uh, basically, not just to be some kind of technocratic elite like people of uh, anywhere, but let's say uh, to be rooted somewhere, or be more, let's say, rooted in uh, two places or more places. So to be a person of everywhere, you know, or um, not not just a nationalistic uh, person, but let's say rooted in a small local community, but also having connections and cooperating uh, globally with some other other people so have this kind of planetary ecological or um, uh, cosmopolitan vision but at the same time don't be just like some consultant who can fly from one country to another not rooted anywhere uh, but uh, okay maybe i'm i'm too too off here but just wanted to connect the notion of sacred and community uh, vis-a-vis markets and the state somehow. Yeah,
1: and and again, we'll return to the 17th century, right, which is so instructive because the, and I write about this in my book in the 13 Social Miracles where I talk about redrawing the national borders, right? Um, Even the very idea of a national border um, is something that emerged in the 17th century, what we know of as the nation state didn't exist. Uh, The lines that we have on the continents, especially the continents of like Africa and elsewhere, those lines were not drawn (laughs) in the 17th century at all, not even close. Um, And so what we know of as places, quote unquote, places, right? Or countries, right? These are fairly recent, this in some places, very recent uh, constructions, Mm. right? Like, so that's the first point, which is that what we come to take these things when you look at like a globe or a map and you come to take them as like they're almost written on the earth, right? But if you go up into space and you look down on the earth, only in very few circumstances, uh, usually due to military buildups, can you see the actual line between countries? So if it's a national marker, it's a river, you see the river, but you don't, that doesn't tell you that this side is these people. So these lines that we've drawn around national borders. This is particularly true in your part of the world and in other places where it's like, how do we deal with these, right? So the blood and the soil and all of that with these borders. And so so then you, people go too far in the other direction. Like, well, we'll erase all the borders and we'll all be mm-hmm. one planet, one people. And you're like, well, that's incredibly naive and actually a frightening totalitarian scenario, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So there's so what's the middle ground? And you're expressing it. It's a it's a bioregional cosmopolitanism uh, that's sensitive to the unique stories of peoples and the yeah. people and their land, right? And so that's a lot in that statement, which includes a whole thing about indigenous peoples. And there's like all of this stuff in there because of where did the land come from and the stuff. So at the end of the day, I do propose that there are naturally existing regional enclaves, which could create multiple, really numerous unique places, which would have reasonably internally coherent infrastructures, supply chains, and other things. So you'd have a a relocalization and a doubling down on place. Like in Vermont, there's a saying, like a hashtag, like a Twitter thing, hashtag Vermont can feed itself. which is nice like there's Mm. enough local agriculture and enough awareness of the affordances of the bio region like you don't come to vermont to grow oranges right (laughs) like so you know what so so there are affordances um, that regions could have which could allow for unique schooling unique infrastructure unique uh you know places in the global economy that said uh we don't want to re-tribalization where we are limited only to the affordances of our bioregion and therefore susceptible to famine <laughs> drought etc so there there's this there's this balancing act where as the nation states become increasingly irrelevant mostly their militaries are the reasons that they remain relevant economically noetically meaning culturally there's a whole bunch of other things that are emerging including even just through the movements of the market, a relocalization of certain supply chains, the pandemic did this in particular. So, yes, yeah, so I'm predicting the emergence of something like a bio regional cosmopolitanism, which will be structured initially like a kind of techno feudalism. This is where it gets weird because remember, I said the nation states become increasingly irrelevant, uh, which means that exercising of policing and protecting of infrastructure and a whole bunch of other things um, are gonna start to be actually offloaded from nation states into private hands, at least in the states, in the United States, we're already seeing this. Um, So yeah, so it's it's interesting, just like in the 30 years war, never would have been able to predict (laughs) that these nation states would emerge, that there'd be this whole continent cut up into sometimes perfectly square states like the middle of the united states completely arbitrary fiction of the geometry basically uh could never have predicted that so similarly likewise the future of the way that the cosmopolitan civilization that's trying to emerge is is organized what that looks like I, i don't know but i do know that the the nation states becoming increasingly uh, outdated, just like its school systems. Um, so there, yeah, there's a need for a return to certain kinds of resilient, local, um, specific. As long as you keep the hidden universal, as long as you keep, uh, and this is the difference. Like it's not a, it's not a re-tribalization or what they're called uh disparagingly for your part of the world like balkanization like this balkanization, is it. right like that's a disparaging word this my family is from uh yugoslavia I, I, um,
0: yeah yeah I, I heard it actually on some podcast there, it just, yes, like, yes. actually today i think in the morning i, I couldn't <laughs> yes. sleep i couldn't sleep so it's two two in the morning or three i was listening to uh i think uh, maybe global futures project or something like that. I don't know where you said it because I, I listened to like two or yeah. three. And so yeah. So yeah, okay you're from former Yugoslavia. So yeah. Yeah. Balkanization I mean, is uh I, I know the word. Yeah. I mean, exactly.
1: So that's not what I'm well that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. But what I am saying is that the the scale at which we're trying to operate, the scale at which we're trying to homogenize, which is the scale at which we're trying to make everything the same and make everything work in it, it's just it's not
0: yeah Yeah, i mean uh yeah this is another uh like okay another topic where you we for uh, maybe the whole podcast or something but it's uh one of the uh, maybe most important uh chapters in your book or i mean not most yeah um um interesting or how to, how to say it like um, you you had a separate lecture on it I think for Ronin Institute if measurement. Correct, about measurement yeah yeah, yeah. it's um, and it was fascinating maybe most fascinating uh, is, is the word but of course I, I liked all of them but I, I re-read, uh, reread just parts now but the measurement and uh, because you mentioned this global harmonization or maybe I mentioned it but you, you meant it like kind of homogenization sorry my, uh, pardon my English um, so and uh, yeah I so thought that this is actually this is a problem eh? like this global harmonization of like everybody has to uh, we have the saying in the post-communistic Slovakia everybody has to ride with a blue pen so it's like a from one song you know if you don't ride with blue pen you're like I don't know dissident or if you are sticking your head uh, uh, up, it will be cut off, so everybody just needs to be um, um, leveled up, uh, but in a, I don't know if it's correct word, but yeah. So this global harmonization can be a problem. I mean, I think we've seen it also in, in COVID. Uh, where uh, there is not enough space for a different maybe small countries uh, to, to do various parallel experiments or just like to do uh, go uh, go their own way trying different things but uh, now you need to have some super, natu- uh, super s- state uh, or um, <coughs> multinational I don't know uh, organization um, saying yeah approving it let's say so it's not uh, I mean it's Okay, this this is one example of what you um, uh, describe in this measurement. Mm. Yeah,
1: the global crisis of measurement. I describe it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I a few things to say. Like, I discovered the problem just by looking at the problem of standardized testing in school. And you, in the United States, standardized tests became the be all and end all of schooling. They became the main way that schools ran and. What I started to look at when I was looking at standardized testing was actually the application of a decision making procedure to education, which had already been applied basically everywhere else, (laughs) which is the, you know, put a standard in place, put a measure in place to see if the standard was reached, and then change the system based on a measurement enabled auto correction, right, which makes sense if you're building cars or something in a factory, right? That you would have measurements in place to allow for on-the-fly quality control improvements based on measurement-enabled objectification of work process, right? Great. Like Taylorism, going back to like the 1800s, like this is how modernity functioned, right? Uh, And there are many areas where that type of efficiency-oriented measurement-intensive Six,
0: quality sigma, control.
1: six sigma six yes, sigma sense in a whole many areas, but as soon as you start to apply that in the regulation of humans, let alone learning in educational environments, you are going down a miss, you're like you're taking the wrong approach. Not that there isn't places for assessment and measurement in education, there are. I, I innovated in the design of standardized tests. I think there's actually many, many places where where testing is necessary, but the simple decision procedure based on those kinds of tests that was being imported. As I started to see that was a general problem, I started to realize that like, there's a really big mess that we've created involving the over-application of this way of thinking about the use of measurement Um, and uh, particularly in psychometrics, but also in other areas of human life where uh, we need other ways to think about issues of scale and quantity and standardization and those kinds of f- factors. So it led me down this whole rabbit hole of looking at the International Standards Organization, which is, ISO, which is yeah. uh, the ISO, which is like,
0: ISO, sorry, ISO it's, ISO.
1: it's remarkable because it's, you know, it's, people say there's no global governance, and there, there is no gl- global governance. Like the UN is not a global governance government. Um, mm-hmm. but the ISO is the closest thing to a global government government. It actually regulates, um, a whole bunch of what's called soft laws. They're just regulations. They're not technically legal codes, but so affecting almost every single supply chain and major industry. Uh, the ISO sets the standards, um, for the size of a shipping container, um, sets the standards for the size of a credit card, right? Mm-hmm. Like a whole many, so many specific things that make the world system technically interoperable and allows for vast complex things to take place that otherwise couldn't take place. Um, but in that process, so, we've, you
0: know, sorry, this is maybe the distinction between complicated and complex, uh, just like it's overcomplicated maybe then, but not, um, uh, not complex enough meaning like, uh, Uh, it's maybe too rigid and uh, set in stone but let's say um, it's like uh, you know the airplane is a complicated uh, product because but the airplane cannot uh, repair itself Uh, but let's say a bird or a human being uh, it's like you you have this autopoetic uh, um, or self-repairing tendency and so maybe OECD is another like or UNDP OECD I, I'm like in this kind of uh, I work in this area and I, I see like uh, you mentioned that um, uh, this is like uh, if, if you um, if you are uh, leading or if you come up with new measurements or if you are the one who is like proposing uh, this kind of soft laws or how to call them so regulations it's kind of a way how to get power and actually i can i can see uh, see it, uh, uh, it's, it's true because uh, i can see a lot of actors um, i also work uh, like uh, or, or has been i uh, have been working in this area of uh, sustainability or corporate um, uh, i mean uh, uh, csr uh, uh, corporate social responsibility or how you call it today so like um, um, and um, and um, blended finance, development finance, these kind of things. And you see various actors like OECD wanted uh, they they want their piece of cake so they come up with their framework which is like a meta framework including, all the other frameworks, but like kind of <laughs> hinting that yep. they want to be the boss, you know, it's kind of like, uh, maybe not not really, but you, you see this kind of uh, funny play, like everybody comes up with their framework and and they will uh, of course rec- uh, recognize uh, the others, but they also want kind of like, uh, hello, we are here and we will t- tell you how to do things. So. Totally.
1: And the point is that the framework includes a system of standards and a set of measures to see if people are meeting those standards, right? So it's like, <clears throat> if you represent a bunch of people who harvest coconuts in Thailand and you mm-hmm. wanna make some like sustainably harvested coconuts, right? It's sustainably harvested coconut international certification organization. Okay, so we're coconut farmers who just created an organization to certify ourselves in some rule that we just made up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the idea. And that happens all the time. It's one of the things that happens in educational testing, too. You build a curriculum, you want to show the curriculum works, you make the test that assesses the curriculum, and then you show that the curriculum works, right? And you're also doing statistical analysis, right? And we can see, of course, in COVID, in the pandemic, the way measurement, biometric measurement has interfaced with political decision making. Across the board, and actually laid the groundwork for sweeping changes in the use of biometric infrastructures for regulating human uh, behavior, um, which is something I also predicted in the book. Uh, and so, yeah, we're looking at an over measured or hyper measured world where everything that moves is basically measured. Um, and what's interesting is that, and you made the complex, complicated distinction, which is exactly the right one to make where something complicated is usually built by humans uh can break cannot repair itself um moving parts tons of moving parts hundreds of thousands of moving parts but they're all interchangeable replaceable with ones organic things are complex things that humans don't make like humans humans don't make humans (laughs) uh humans give birth to humans yeah but they don't make humans like a complicated thing, like the way humans make robots, right? Humans make robots, robots are complicated. If you have a complicated thing and you measure it, you can actually comprehensively measure a complicated thing. Like all the gauges on the plane are sufficient to give you an understanding of the plane because mm-hmm. it's built, you know exactly how it works. Most organic things I would, and I would venture to say, definitely all things beyond mammals. <laughs> and so especially humans uh, you cannot exhaustively measure them in order to predict behavior. I mean, this even happens with hurricanes and other complex physiological phenomena, where eventually it's so complex that even if you have comprehensive, you think you have comprehensive measurement of it, you still can't predict <laughs> what it's going to do. So yeah. the, ex- the exhaustion of measurement as a technique of understanding and control that's what I'm pointing to with the measurement crisis paper, which is to say modernity brings us so far. And this is back to the comedian time between worlds time between worlds also means end of one scientific paradigm, (laughs) (laughs) but haven't yet begun the next scientific paradigm. So right now we're encountering and Morton speaks to this with the hyper objects notion, right? The hyper (laughs) object, hyper object is the thing which shows to science, the limits of science, (laughs) It's like
0: computational
1: irreducibility or something like that. Computational irreducible, exactly. And so no matter how much you measure this thing, you can't exhaust it. Uh, And it's not because you don't have the right measures or the sciences or you're making mistakes. It's because the thing's legitimately too complex for your little scientific methods to handle. And
0: if you are measuring it, it keeps changing somehow as well
1: as maybe. And some of the things like human systems have immeasurable qualities. Like full stop. (laughs) Like There's a whole domain of things which escape technical measurement, which can be evaluated and assessed and judged like we do to one another, but not quantified, Uh, specifically not quantified without a very important remainder to the extent that you shouldn't have even have measured it because the remainder is more important than what you (laughs) measured. Uh, So that's another factor is that
0: or subjective experiences like uh, seeing the sunset as Daniel right. Schreenberg
1: mentioned like, like do you want to measure the beauty of the sunset like yeah. just asking that question is a bad question to ask <clears throat> what would you do you'd set up some Likert scale and would it be phenomen- <laughs> would it be phenomenological is it an objective you know what I mean it's just foolish or measuring the intensity of love you can yeah. speak metaphorically about doing that but it's very different from say measuring the distance between two people right? Physically. Um, so, so yeah, but our success, interestingly enough in physical measurement, like the, and again, back to the enlightenment and what happened after the 30 years war, one of the things that was occurring in convenience's time was widespread, what I would call metrological injustice. So injustice as a result of non-standardized physical measures, it was a huge (laughs) issue in the feudal world was unjust weights and measures, right? One of the things that the French Revolution and the metric system did was just fucking cut that shit out. They were like, nope, <laughs> one, one measure for all man for all time. One measure for all man for all time. And that solved one kind of problem. It meant if yeah, I went the to that meter,
0: day, I, I read the- Yeah, it's a fascinating play. story. But they it meant that if to, I. To right. um, anchor it in a, some kind of planetary scale, I don't know, something with equator or a further. But then they didn't manage somehow, so it mistakes. was arbitrary at the end. Yes, it is, ended up being
1: arbitrary, but it was well, imposed universally, which meant that if I went from this town to that town, and I got a liter of to drink, it would be a liter, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. or whatever.
0: But it, was. it, but it wasn't the king's foot then. It was not the king's foot. It was scientific. It was suddenly supposed to be
1: scientific, and it was supposed yeah. to be geocentric or world centric, so that uh-huh. it was supposed to be a sub part of a radian of the whole circumference of the earth. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, but the point is that that was a major advance, like the the birth of objective measurement and the political history of quantitative objectivity as an instrument of power. A lot of that was good. But again, what we've done is overextend the applicability of that decision-making procedure. So now that we're using those kinds of things on things that we just shouldn't, like complex systems that we do not understand well enough Mm -hmm. like the way pandemics work for example (laughs) like we're taking a we're trying to solve a complex problem with a complicated single intervention
0: yeah just one one intervention it's like either or kind of thinking you know like this modern or i don't know and that's how it's modern as well yeah either or
1: yeah complicated Uh, work that way like an airplane one missing part in an airplane engine and it's not working Mm-hmm. It's like it's either or, but complex systems can often work under states of extreme compromise mm-hmm. um, and
0: and various it's like scale scalers or in various configurations and it can work like this yeah. this way that way and there is a great diversity in approaches they might uh, um, result in a similar uh, I mean results uh, bring similar right. results. Um, right
1: uh yeah Keep going pretty soon so you have more. to
0: go you have to go soon, yeah. okay 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 cool cool oh it was, well, it was a blast then yeah, <laughs> i don't know i awesome. um, wanted to bring it back to yeah i, I with the measurement maybe I, I like the idea of your of um uh, I mean, the story that you wanted, you actually had a company or it was an organization uh, with, uh, that came up with uh, some new kind of um, new metrics or measure uh, standardized testing for schools. But then uh, there was a lady in one meeting where she told you that she represents um, real estate. Um, interest in this town and actually the, the real inter uh, real estate prices would fluctuate too much if you come up with new metrics of standardized testing in education. So it was quite fascinating.
1: (laughs) And that's, and that's the lesson learned from the, from the measurement issue is that if you change, like, if you want to change a huge system, change the measure, change the measurement that they're using to regulate that system it's a big lesson. Like if you measure something different, the whole feedback dynamic changes. Um, And so right now we mostly value economies based on the GDP, right? Gross domestic product. Like that's the, that seems to be like the main thing. It's kind of like if you were worried about your health and all you cared about was your weight. Some people are like, this. all they care about is how much they weigh. If they're weighing, if they're weighing less then they're getting healthier. (laughs) And if they're weighing more, they're getting unhealthy, irrespective of all the other things that you could be measuring, right? And so similarly with GDP, we think we're getting better because GDP is going up. But in fact, it could be getting a lot worse, even though GDP is going up, which is what's happening right now in Mm -hmm. the United States because of the disconnect between the finance and actual economy. That's another issue. The point here is that you look at one measure, you focus only on it and you optimize for it, and you're definitely messing up. other stuff, like sometimes irrevocably. Um, And so yeah, the, the standardized testing in particular, because of the weight that was put on the standardized test. And this lady was matching like real estate house prices, right? Whole city blocks and neighborhoods, like can a company relocate to a city and recruit employees to come live in that city or not? That depends on the standardized test scores used in these schools. Like, so the simple measure gets so much weighted on it that you have, you know, the, in Atlanta, Georgia, the largest cheating scandal in the United States history, which is orchestrated from the superintendent down in collaboration with business leaders in Atlanta who just wanted Atlanta to look like a place to come live. They wanted Atlanta to look like it was a good city, you know. Um, and yeah, so, yeah, if you can manipulate measures, you can manipulate power and do a ton of stuff. And so the dynamic relationship between measurement and power and mathematics and violence in particular, those things form this cluster. So that's why whenever you're looking at new regimes of measurement, you're looking at new forms of power. And so that's what you're seeing with the pandemic right now. yes, it's a rollout of medical technology, but we're also seeing a rollout of new ways of gating and measuring human beings as they move through space and time. Um, And so that means that we're looking at a new mode of social control based on a new regime of measurement, in this case, biomedical, but biomedical is actually serving as a proxy for socio-political economic. So that's where it gets dicier um,
0: it's it's like also Illich uh, even Illich was writing about this and and he also has this all this unschooling or uh, unschooling society this kind of approach maybe just to finish on a positive note because you have to go and the want to keep you I would like to I'm retired as well but I would like to keep you of course another hour but then maybe next time some other time if um, if we are lucky if uh, or if I'm lucky, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you 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 mentioned uh, these distributed um, uh, educational hubs, and so uh, just to give you some examples from uh, Slovakia, we have actually. Well, um, also like I think it's two schools now like it's like uh, abandoned schools or something that were recreated by community one was actually artists that escaped or they were like um, they had to move because of um, higher prices from the city center Uh, like uh, uh, they went to a periphery and there was like this um, yeah uh, abandoned school and they kind of recreated it so it's like uh, Different cool. communities, also kindergarten is starting there. Uh, it's in, uh, in the mine town, but it's okay. This is kind of normal for big towns, but there is also a mining town, which is like a uh, much less developed, which also has such a school now being recreated by a local community. So it, of course you have these kind of examples. And also right. there, there are some like um, one is called like Zayezhova community. Also like uh, they have their own, like kind of, uh, they just a bunch of people, uh, 20 years ago came together and started living in some village and now actually the real estate prices there are quite high going up so in the middle of nowhere <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but like, it's yeah. but it's not based on a single metric like uh, right. the, the kids are having good scores but it's they build yep. their unique culture and uh, also a great educational spot well, it's like a village yep. uh, incubator uh, or something where business yep. businesses yep. even come for lectures so yeah
1: yep. or no, maybe, I yeah mean, that's the uh your part of the world actually gives me hope sometimes in the future because you guys have been between worlds for a longer time than most of us and so there's all these places where precisely because the old institutions aren't quite working correctly Mm
0: -hmm.
1: there's opportunity right there's opportunity that the school is empty why is the school empty (laughs) like there's a mistake was made somewhere if there's an empty school uh, and similarly in the States, like in places like Detroit and other places that are just like urban wastelands now, you're seeing farming and agriculture and these types of communities taking back over the responsibility for schooling and education. And so that's, again, one of my main hopes is that, you know, if you look at patterns of civilizational collapse and you look at prior civilizations that have collapsed, when you find that dynamic of basically in the wilderness or in the places where the old system breaks down, creates like a vacuum and into that vacuum rushes stuff. Sometimes it's bad, (laughs) right? Like if policing withdraws from a city, that's a vacuum and crime rushes in. Mm -hmm. But if education withdraws and often what the formal education withdraws, then what rushes in is the informal education, which sometimes if those schools were bad is better than what was already in place, right? So that's the idea is that it's precisely COVID broke open the possibility in the United States to start to dismantle the school system and to start to build something a lot better. Now, it's been a mess. And so a lot of kids got hurt, uh, but there are also pockets where it's been really liberating for some communities, some teachers, and some students. Um, so yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that the model that I proposed, I've heard echoed back to me by people who would never read the book, right? Like you're saying, these artists who just did it because what I'm describing is a kind of like um, instinctual reaction <laughs> that humans have to education as a phenomenon. Again, not to schooling. Schooling is this modern invention, thanks to mm-hmm. Comenius and others, that was really appropriate at a certain time. Uh, but education is deeper species-specific trait for which we have instincts, like strong instincts. Like if you look at refugee camps, some of the first things that pop up in refugee camps are schools. (laughs) Like they're not schools in the way we think of them, but they're parents getting together, putting the kids in one place, putting someone who's very responsible in charge and doing something like teaching whatever their religion is or teaching whatever they need to teach, right? So similarly, I think as as the situation becomes more unstable, which is what I see happening um, from like a single polar to a bipolar, to a multipolar (laughs) complex geopolitical craziness happening Mm. uh, in the gaps, in the breakage, in the breakdown, new life springs out. And so I think that, Education will be one of the places where that happens in some really profound ways. Um, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen everywhere. Like they're like already we're seeing in the United States. Um, profound, profound negative impacts from the pandemic on childhood development, like worse than I had anticipated um, <clears throat> in terms of suicides and numbers of kids on psychiatric medication and that kind of stuff. But, I think in other places, it still may be possible to pull something together. Um, So that's my attempt to to end on a note of hope, which is that there's a resilience built into the human, specifically around the instinct of education. And so we need to like free our minds from allegiance to those institutions that are dying and find a way to get in touch with the instinct to educate uh, and just have situational awareness, and just <laughs> yeah. and just do that, you know. And focus
0: on neighborhood, and not just uh, homeschooling in front of screens, but at least a couple of people yes. getting together, like yeah. couple and of parents, couple of educators. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's the instinct. Because par- you look at a kid in front of a screen as a parent, you're like, this is not enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the instinct is like, this is not right. The kids six hours a day in front of a screen. The instinct is to get other kids multi-ages multi, yeah, multi, yeah. multi-age kid groupings with responsible parents with rich materials and environments like that's the instinct you know um yeah so all right brother i need to Thank run so
0: <laughs> take care so
1: contact me again and again my i guess i you know from america this is like a communion, like Comenius' spirit is alive i'll say that <laughs> I learned that. so
0: much about Comenius I honestly didn't know much. Uh, I didn't know.
1: I went, I went through eight or nine years of graduate school in philosophy of education at fucking Harvard, where he was invited to be the president. And I never heard of him. And I had to discover him through researching the Russocrucians. Basically, that's how I discovered Comenius So anyway, he's a world historical figure. And to honor him on the 350th, I'm very I'm honored to be a part of it. He's
0: big here, you know. We have a communist university in my uh, my town. He's big, but uh, I didn't know you 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 taught me or you showed me so many interesting things with the Dutch company, the East India Company. With I I mean, lots of things. So uh, thank you very much for your time and for for this talk. And hopefully we 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 see each other or write each other or something sometime. Yes, awesome.
1: And likewise, people contacting me who see this, I welcome emails if you can give yeah. out my email.
0: And yeah. they should check uh, co- the Consilience, consilience Project, uh, which yeah. is an attempt at the meta news and kind of uh, uh, bringing some educational renaissance, I, g- I guess, of, um, for maybe you can have a one-liner better than me. But <laughs> no, that's pretty
1: good. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, it's good writing. You know, it's, yeah. it's good writing on the state of... Of affairs and a lot of what i was speaking to so yes. yeah you can link to that as well
0: okay thank you bye. all right so take care. take care and have a nice uh, day and evening still bye you.